You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. So great. So great. Well, we've been on this journey, and it's been a great journey. And just as they talked about, we're hoping to do even more. It's been tremendously successful so far, but to do even more and see God do even more through us. And for some of us, we'll be like the McNeese's that we'll step up. God has blessed us this year, and we'll be able to step up. Others, it'll be like, I'm going to hold to what I uh, said that I was going to do, my pledge and my number that God gave me, and we're going to make that happen. And then others, you haven't even been a part of Kainos yet. You're going to be brand new jumping in. We've had almost 1,200 new members in the last about 13 months. And to be able to see you jump into Kainos, and with that, we'll be able to do even more. So you're at Romans chapter 7, or you should be, and I want you to turn to page 26 in your booklet, if you would, so we could take notes here at page 26. There's a note guide, and also we've given you each week a prayer and reflection thing that you can read throughout the week. But let's look at Romans 7, and we're going to jump in in just a bit into just into verse 14. But let me give you verses 1 through 13 just in a recap. This whole thing is about the law versus the Spirit, about the rules and regulations of the law versus really trusting Jesus as our Savior and letting God do His work. So he gives us a couple illustrations. He tells us first, and that's first a, a few verses there that get down to about verse 6. He says, you, in marriage, there's a law that, that when the husband and wife are married, they're bound together. But it says, if the husband was to die, then you would be able to remarry. And so being able to remarry in that way, it's basic, basically saying that you are dying to the law, and then we are then married to Christ. It's an illustration of the husband being the law and then being Christ and us being the bride of Christ. That's the first six verses where he says, I want you to know you've died to the law and that now you're alive in Christ. Then he gives throughout the rest of this little section from about verse 7 through 13, he says, now, I want you to know though the law is good. It's good that we have the law and that we can understand the law. And what he's trying to get at is he wants us to understand that we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. We have a brand new identity in Christ. We are free in Christ. We're no longer a slave to sin. We are free to Jesus Christ because we don't belong to the law. We are now saved in the Lord and there's grace that's upon us. Now, do we still want to be obedient to Christ? Of course we do. Is there still things that we follow the Ten Commandments? Yes, of course we do. But he's saying that the way that you get to God is not through the law of keeping everything right and through the old temple system and the old Mosaic law system. The way that you get to God is through a grace relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans chapters 1 through 3 was condemnation. We have all sinned. Romans 4 and 5 was justification. His grace has made it just if I'd never sinned. And then six through eight is sanctification. We're growing in our relationship with the law. So he's saying that the law wasn't bad, but the law wasn't enough to save you. You couldn't keep it perfectly. Let me give you an illustration like this. If you had an x-ray, maybe it's a dental x-ray or a broken bone x-ray. Well, the x-ray doesn't fix the problem. The x-ray identifies the problem. The law does not fix the problem. The law identifies the problem. So I look at the law and I say, oh, I'm not supposed to covet. And then when I covet, I go, oh, I know that's wrong. 
but it doesn't fix it. But grace, we'll see, puts inside our hearts a relationship with Jesus Christ so that when we have a relationship with Christ, now we live out of a new nature, a new mindset. We are free in Christ to follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit resides in us. And now the power of God is in us to live the life that he wants us to live. So with that thought, we're gonna jump in to verse, uh, let me look here, we're gonna jump into verse 15 and Paul's gonna get in this struggle, okay? It's gonna be a struggle. Here's the struggle. I know in my heart, I wanna walk with Jesus because he's changed me. But I know in my flesh, I struggle to walk with Jesus. Here's what it looks like. I know in my heart, I am so excited about driving to church and getting there and hearing the word of God taught and worshiping with the people of God. But that guy just cut me off. And I'm mad at him, right? And so we've got this struggle. We can all feel this, this flesh and this spirit battle. And Paul's gonna go through this. Now it's gonna be good old Paul. He's gonna say it like 50 different ways. It's gonna be super wordy. And that's why I'm gonna try to help you out with it, okay? So here we go. And let's look and see in verse 15. Here we go. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now that's sin. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, okay? It's getting kind of wordy already, isn't it? So he's saying, if I, don't do what, if I do what I don't want to do, which is sin, then I'm agreeing with the law that the x-ray is showing that the bone is broken. I'm agreeing with that x-ray. Verse 17, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. He needs Christ to do this. Verse 19, for I do not practice, for, excuse me, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me so I discover this, the law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. Verse 22, this is a major verse, underline this. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin and in the parts of my body. Okay, what does all that mean? Let me give it to you in a sentence there's a struggle to live a Christian life, okay? That's what that whole thing means. There's a struggle to live the Christian life. It's been said before, the Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is not difficult. The Christian life is impossible apart from the Spirit of God and Jesus living in your heart. So in this Christian life, we feel this struggle, don't we? We've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We love Jesus. We want to do what's right. We don't want to do what's wrong. When we do what's wrong, we feel it. We go, oh, why did I do that? And hopefully the why did I do that is when you feel like that, it's over sin. And that's because in your heart, you want to obey God. Now, if you come to church and say, oh, why did I go to church? Well, you need to investigate your heart if you really have a relationship with Jesus. If you say, oh, I really don't want to read the Bible. Oh, and when they sing those praise songs, I don't like it. Well, that's a whole different deal, right? 
It's the believer in Christ who says, oh, I actually, I want to read the Bible more. I want to sing more to the Lord. I want to walk more clearly with the Lord, but ah, 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 I can't seem to get all that down to perfection. There's a struggle in the Christian life. Here's what John Piper says. The walk is a precarious line between cocky presumption that you are above sin and hopeless despair that you will never live up to the demand for perfection in this life. My goal is to push you away from pride towards humility, away from despair towards hope. See, the Christian life is humbly hopeful. Lord, if it wasn't for your grace, humbly, but hopeful that through your power and your strength, I can live out the Christian life. That God has done something in you, that you are saved, that your life has been hidden with Christ, that you've been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, Galatians 2, but Christ lives in you. And this life you live in the body, you live in the hope of the Son of God. So we want to live in the power of Jesus, knowing that we'll never walk in the perfection of Jesus. We've said it like this many, many times, we'll never be sinless but we can sin less. So the law shows me, whoa, I know I've done wrong. I get that. I understand that. I even know it in my own heart. But Jesus lives inside of me now, and he's changing me and shaping me, and I struggle with these things, but I want to walk with him more and more. Here's what one commentator says. It seems rather that Paul is describing here the most spiritual and mature of Christians, who the more honestly they measure themselves against God's standards of righteousness, the more they realize how much they fall short. The closer we get to God, the more we see our own sin. Thus it is the immature, fleshly, legalistic persons who live under the illusion that they are spiritual and that they will measure up to God's standards. So he's saying this, that we see, the more we see the Lord, the more we understand our sin, and we say, the more I need God. Because there's a big debate, and it's an interesting debate. I don't think it's a real debate. I'll tell you what I think, so you don't, we don't even have to spend a lot of time on it. Not just because what I think, but I think the Scripture bears it out. People ask, well, is this written to unbelievers or believers, this struggle? I think that it's written to believers, okay? Because two reasons. One, the logic of Romans. Why would Paul take us through chapters 1 through 3 talking about non-believing condemnation of sin? Then he'd take us through 4 through 5 and talk about being justified in Jesus, Then he would take us through six that we talked about, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. Then we would get into seven and he would go all the way back to one. That doesn't make sense to me because in eight, we're gonna get further into the spirit of God. We're just gonna, it's a very logical book. Then also we see throughout this and particularly verse 22 and verse 19, Paul says, I've been changed in the inner man, I believe in the laws of God. God's changed me, I'm a new man in Christ. So I think this is to believers, and that gives me great hope as a believer. Listen, Cyprus and Siena downtown is great hope because I know in me, there's a struggle. Is there not in you? Have you solved all the problems of anger and lust and greed and covetedness and selfishness and all that? I mean, have you got that done? No, we're still working on that. Just... Recently, Kelly and I were traveling. I spoke at a thing, and uh, we got to a place. We got to the, to the airport, and we were rushed. We had to make the flight. We had to get there, and blah, 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 blah. So we got out. We got everything, got everything, took off, got on this little tram to go across, and I realized I left my phone in the rental car. 
So, good thing your pastor works out on occasion. I sprinted like you've never seen back to that car and got to that car and got my phone and put it in my pocket and came back. And Kelly was so gracious and so nice. Like, oh, we're going to make the flight. Don't worry, don't fly. And we made it. We had some margin. It was great. So we made it. It was great. And I thought this. Let me just tell myself, I thought, ah, I'm so relieved. Ah, that makes sense why I left my phone in the rental car. And I thought, what if Kelly would have left her phone in the rental car? I'll be honest with you, I would have been mad at her, okay? We got all this stuff, you know, we're late. Why didn't you put your phone in your pocket? You should have been in your purse. Why did you have it? But when I left my phone in the rental car, I, it made perfect sense. It was no problem at all. <laughs> right? I mean, is that true in your marriage? Is that true in your friendships? It makes perfect sense when I make the mistake. Why did you make the mistake? Okay? What is that? That's me being very gracious to me and very law-oriented to her in the case. And she even said, boy, I'm glad it wasn't me, you know I mean? So, and I, please don't think I'm this ruthless husband. That's not what I'm trying to get at here. You can have confidence that our marriage is solid. It's good and I'm a good man. But she was glad because she would have felt so bad and it would have been, you know, all that. And then I would have had to still do the running to go get the phone, okay? So all of that to say we're struggling as believers and we never have it down, but we're new in Jesus, so I don't want the struggle to throw you off of your Christianity. I want you to understand God's done something in you and he wants to do something through you, yes, but he's done something in you. So walk in that Christian still struggle. We we're talking about Kainos and the great things we're getting to do. You know, we're gonna help plant churches all over the nation. So we're gonna build and I'll show you our, our Santa campus in particular. Uh, and then also we're gonna do some cool stuff at Cyprus and downtown and at the Loop. It's gonna be great. But we're also doing, we're helping to plant churches all throughout uh, the country as well. One of the cities that's really been on our heart is the city of Boston, okay? A lot of folks, when, when you talk about college kids and, I mean, schools and all this, people come through Boston like crazy and they become leaders of corporations and political leaders all over with Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Boston College, and a bunch of other campuses we wouldn't know just off the top of our head. So we, we want to just really, we're inspecting and looking at how can we help plant churches in Boston. So our missions pastor, Clark Reynolds, went to Boston and he was up there and he was meeting with some folks on our behalf to kind of figure out what all we need to do, partnering with the North American Mission Board. And he just basically he said, so what do you, what do y'all need? And one of the heads of church planning, he said this, and I, this just, just broke my heart and I hope it breaks yours. He said this, he goes, our pastor's wives are struggling tremendously. We had 13 church planters leave last year. Not go, 13 leave because it's so expensive for their families it's so really adverse to the faith. The schools are difficult and these pastors' wives are struggling like crazy to try to keep their families together while their husbands and them are trying to plant this church in a very hard ground place. Here's, that's a heartbreak, right? But here's the blessing. Clark said, well, we can do something about that. And you, Cypress, Siena, downtown, digital family, Kynos people, if you're involved in Kynos, if you're a giver to Kynos, then this is you and this is me. 
Clark was able to say, and we were able to decide, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire for the next three years a part-time position in Boston to minister particularly to the pastor's wives in Boston. How awesome is that? Can we just give a cheer for that? Ladies, can you cheer like double for that? Can you see that on a lady's heart in particular, trying to keep the home and the church and the family and the kids and the blah, 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 all the things y'all juggle? And we were able with kindness to step forward and say, there's a struggle in the faith. And it's not always sin to holiness. Sometimes it's in your holiness to try to further the gospel. It's hard. And so we stepped in because of y'all's giving and my giving. We stepped in and said, we want to do something about that, particularly for those pastors' wives. So there's this struggle. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Walk with God. But here's what's so great. Here's what I want to get to. This is what I'm really passionate about. I want you to see this verse 19 and verse 22 in particular, because I'm going to give you the point in a second, but I want you to hear it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want. So Paul's saying, I want to follow Christ, but I'm practicing the evil that I do not want to do. Now jump to verse 22. For in my inner self, my soul, the deepest part of me, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Here's the deal. And this was life-changing for me. Our desires have changed as a believer. Our desires have changed. Here's what I thought for years. I thought just my trying to do good had changed, right? I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and now I know better. I've seen the x-ray, and I know now the bone is broken, so I'm going to do a better job to keep the law. And a lot of times we can do that as churchgoers. And again, obedience is great. The law is good, Paul is telling us even. But the way that I keep the obedience, the way that I please God is because I follow my innermost desires and I let Jesus live through me, not I try harder willpower as a church member. And some of us have grown up on try better and basically the pastor wagged his finger at you every single week and said, okay, do better, do better, do better, give more, give more, give more. Instead of Jesus is inside of you and in the inner man or woman, your soul, you want to follow God. It's not eat your vegetables, follow God because it's good for you. It's slice your steak and dine on the filet mignon of the Lord that God has put his Holy Spirit in you so that your deepest desires have changed. Let me give you an illustration I saw when I was in, in well, I heard, and I've now put some visual to it, um, in college with my, my college pastor was Dwight Edwards, who's a part of our church. He was my pastor in college. And here was the, the illustration that he gave that I'm going to put some visuals to. Are we costume jewelry as believers in Christ? Okay, this is costume jewelry. And what costume jewelry is, is basically it looks beautiful and it's inherently not really worth much, right? It's just gold spray paint over plastic, all right, or whatever it is. But it's costume jewelry. These are not real pearls. This is not real gold. And you know, one way you'll know if it's real or not is melt it. 
Put a flame of trial and you'll find out if it's real. The testing of our faith shows the reality of our faith, doesn't it? Are we costume jewelry, which is on the outside beautiful, but on the inside worthless, okay? Now, many people think of their Christianity as like that. On the outside, I do what's right. I go to church. I give some money. I try not to use those words. I try not to act like that. I try not to get too much over here, not too much. And we say things like this, you know, everything in moderation and everything in balance. And so I just want to kind of be in the middle here. And I want to just stay pretty on the outside. But on the inside, I'm like, I really feel like I remember a few weeks ago, I'm that toothbrush that displeases God. And God's always frowning at me, and he doesn't love me, and so I'm costume jewelry. Are we costume jewelry, or are we tarnished silver? Tarnished silver on the outside doesn't look real pretty, but it is worthwhile. This is valuable silver. This is real on the inside, but on the outside, it's tarnished. And what happens is we go to Bible study, we go to church, we worship, we share our faith, we give through kainos and other things, and we are basically rubbing off with silver polish as we we do those things to then bring out what's really there. So the tarnished silver is inherently valuable. The costume jewelry is inherently not valuable. This one looks pretty on the outside. This one does not look pretty on the outside. But what sanctification does is it changes tarnished silver and it makes it beautiful. And now through the sanctification that we have of Bible study, of prayer, of walking with God, it takes who we really are and brings it out. So now we reflect Jesus. We shine with Christ. So let me tell you, believer, and this was this, I, I hope it is for you. It was for me. This was life-changing for me. I always thought deep in my heart, I really still wanted to sin. I, that's what I really want to do. And I had to push all that back to be a good Christian. When really I have to release what I really want to do is walk with God. And so now my life is a life of surrender, not a life of effort. It's a life of depth not a life of just the exterior. It's a life of a whole lot of polishing to shine a little bit more. And every day I wanna bring out that rag and I wanna polish and I wanna look and I want the sanctification to bring me out. So I ask you, have you been living as if you are costume jewelry or have you been realizing you are just tarnished silver? For in the inner man, verse 22, I delight, in the law of God. I delight in it. Paul said, oh, I want more than anything to please God. And I'm frustrated with my flesh and my sin. You See the difference? Instead of, well, deep down in my heart, I know that I'm still just a lustful drunkard that just wants to do sin. And so I gotta, I gotta push all that down and keep all that back. Instead, I just need to blossom. He's the vine, we're the branch. Just connect with the vine and you'll bear the fruit, right? It's called abiding, the abiding life of Jesus Christ. Here's what John Owen, you know that name. He was a slave trader that wrote Amazing Grace. He said this at 83 years old, talking about growing in grace. We think growing in grace means getting to a place where we don't need grace anymore. But growing in grace on this side of the resurrection 
often means growing in our awareness of our need for grace. I need a ton of grace. And he says, write this down. Growth in grace means growing in your awareness of your need, not in getting to a place where you feel like your need is no longer necessary. Listen to this. Hell is often full of people who think they deserve heaven. But heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. And only by the grace of Jesus Christ has his spirit been put in me through salvation of trusting God as my savior through Christ's cross and resurrection. Now I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come and I am brand new in him. And now I am inherently worthwhile. I'm a child of God and his spirit is in me, but yet I still struggle with sin. Is there something in you believer right now going, that is exactly right. I want to please God. And I just need to keep pulling that tarnish off and letting God shine through in me. I'm worthwhile. He died for me. He lives inside of me. I am brand new in him. My justification is leading to sanctification, not perfection. Perfection will happen with what's called glorification when we go to heaven. That's when that will happen. And it'll be condemnation to justification to sanctification to glorification. That's how it'll work. But to be able to come through this whole thing and say, we trust you, Lord. Now that gives us the desire to spread the message of the gospel. Isn't that your desire? Isn't that your heart? A new desire. There's a man uh, named Robert Putnam, and he was a Harvard professor. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone <clears throat> about the loneliness of American, the isolation of Americans. Bowling Alone is a very famous book. And then he wrote another book that people didn't know quite as well called American Grace. And he did a study on Christians versus secular people. Okay, that's how he would kind of define it. Those that were church-going, believing Christians, and those that were not church-going, secular people, meaning world, church kind of thing. Here's what he found. Because people, you know, they bash the church all the time. Oh, that's church this, that's church that. Well, let's, come, let's, put, let's put the facts on the table. Christians compared to non, people outside the church, people inside the church, however you want to phrase it. Christians give far more to religious things than non-Christians do or secular people. Oh, to be expected. But Christians give more to non-religious things than secular people as well. Christians volunteer more at church stuff than anybody else. Makes sense. Christians volunteer more at everything else than everybody else. Basically, here's what the facts shocked the Harvard professor of, is Christians and the church give more, volunteer more, do more, live longer, are happier, are more joyful than anybody else outside the church. And what they give and volunteer compared to what the church gives and volunteers is zilcho just about. Why? Because God's put something in us. We want to do that. It's not a headache. It's our heart. And so we come to a thing like kainos and we go, pastors, wives are struggling in Boston. What can we do? How can we help? What can we make happen? People need to have more seats to be able to find Jesus. What can we do? How can we help? 
What can we make different in that realm? Now, I want you to look, if you will, if you'll turn to page 13, or let me make sure I get you the right page here, page 14 in your book. I want to show you what we're going to do in Siena. We're growing like crazy at Siena, which has been awesome, and we need that extra space, and you'll see some pretty pictures there. In Siena, we'll have a new facility that'll seat at least 600 people on multiple services so we can reach a lot of folks. In the next six years in that area, we're expecting 50,000 new people in that just one area of our town. You got that in your mind? 50,000 new people. So the facility we have is very small. It's like a strip shopping center type thing. Sienna folks, you know right now. And so we've got it. We've made it really awesome, but we've been kind of you know, retrofitting and we've got some land we purchased years ago right next door. And we're going to build a facility that's going to be amazing. I want to show you a flyover kind of architecture rendering of this facility here. And I'll give you a little coaching. That's the land that we own there, that big uh, plot there. That's what it'll look like. So we're going to build this amazing thing through Kynos. Those parking lots will be ours as well. One of our new opportunities to buy those, uh, one of those two buildings to the right there. This is walking inside. So you can see it looks just like our logo and just like home. So it'll be our church. We're one church in different locations. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Indoor playground for the kids right there to the right. Lots of young families out there that we'll be able to reach. And just seeing God just do stuff and great things so that we want to say, man, there's people out there. There's people moving there. We want to build a facility that we can reach people and we can go for it. That's a part of our heart. Not something we got to go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. That's our existing building there to the left, just that, that rectangle one. That's all we have right now. And you can see how much we're going to build and how much we need there to grow into it. God's at work. Now, we could ask the question and say, well, man, we're going to spend a lot of money doing that. But let me just give you an encouragement. The more we reach people in Houston, here's what's happening in our church. The more people we reach here, the more missions we do there. The more we reach here, the more missions we do there. I, I, I keep all sorts of like, oh, this will go on my shelf. I have a shelf at home where I keep all of our, not all of it, but important things. And I was looking back and I found this magazine from 2006. So I got all these right here. I like, you know, uh, printed pieces and such. And so I looked back in 2006 and our budget was about $14 million, 13.6. And we gave 1.6 million to missions. Well, our church has grown a lot since 2006. So we gave, you know, because some folks will wonder, well, we're going to spend all this money here. I mean, shouldn't we just do missions, missions, missions? I worry about Houston. Well, the more we reach Jerusalem, the more we'll reach Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Let me give you an example. In 2006, we gave about $1.7 million to missions from our budget. Now we give $4.6 billion from our budget with another total giving of $12 million so Kynos, over the next two years, so 2006, over two years, and we're in, a, we're in an extra type of thing. I get it. We're giving an emphasis to it. Over two years in 2006, we would have given about $3.4 million, which is awesome. In the next two years, last year and this year, we will give $35 million to missions. You see that? Can we cheer for that? 3.4 to 35. Literally, we just moved the decimal point over. And that's because we're reaching in Houston so that reaching in Houston with the new hearts we have as believers, we can step in and reach out to the world and we can, without even thinking, go, Boston needs pastor's wives' health. 
done. Houston's First Baptist Church is hiring a part-time staff member for the North American Mission Board to help in Boston, to help those pastors wives. What else can we do? And that doesn't come because I twisted your arm. Oh, gosh, I got to give to the church. Oh, I don't want to give to the church. Oh, Greg keeps talking about giving. Oh, man, I just, I just, I really just want to spend more money on me. I mean, I'll give a little bit. We go, what? That's who I am. I am excited about this because my heart is different. I don't want another shirt. I want another soul. I want God to do something in somebody else because he's changed me from the inside out. And do I still struggle? Oh, why do I do the things I don't want to do? But what I want to do, I do through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So when God calls you to keep your commitment, that's through the power of Jesus in you, and that's your greatest desire. When he calls you to step it up, that, that's a joy. When he calls you to jump in as a new giver, yes, and even better, and then we'll wrap up, when he calls you to be a new believer in Jesus, that's what it's all about. It's about moving from light or from darkness to light, from the broad road to the narrow road, from, from moving on the path that's of destruction to the path that's headed to heaven. Because Jesus' cross, you realize it is a x-ray to the broken bone of your soul by the law. And you need Jesus to come into your life to forgive your sins and place your faith in him so that Jesus lives inside of you. And now you're a husband from that. Now you're a wife from that. Now you're a kid with your parents from that. From the new nature, the new creation, the tarnished silver that you're just learning to polish more and more. And I'm hoping to help you polish it right now today so that you can shine with Jesus. You are not a fake. You are a Christian and Jesus lives in you. And the stats from a Harvard professor show that changes everything. Last thing, and we're done. Look at verse 24 and 25. How's he going to wrap this thing up? Here's how he's going to wrap it up. What a wretched man I am. Well, that doesn't sound too encouraging, but it sounds humble, doesn't it? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, it could end right there. Many places, many people in their lives have ended just with that. But there's a verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm serving, or with my flesh, the law of sin. Thanks be to God. The Lord Jesus Christ set me free. So in me, I'm brand new, new mind in Christ, new heart in Christ. But I still got this ugly thing called the flesh that I'm going to have to carry around with me. And it's going to keep getting tarnished, but I'm going to keep walking. Last point, we are grateful for our Savior. The war is over, but the battle continues. The war is over. There's victory in Jesus, but the battle continues, doesn't it? Of trying to walk in righteousness instead of sin. But we walk in a new nature and a new strength and a new power and a new, new identity with new desires to accomplish great things for God, to see the Lord do that. Because we are, have you heard this word before? Kainos. We're new, the Greek word for new. 
give you a last illustration and we're done. FDR, our president, Winston Churchill, Great Britain, World War II. After Pearl Harbor, let me show you a picture of them as you hear this quote. There they are. After World War II and the attack on Pearl Harbor, or after the attack on Pearl Harbor, we got into World War II and Churchill got a call from FDR and the president said, well, we're all in the same boat now. And then he said this, this is what Churchill wrote in his memoir. Hearing that the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live, Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply a proper application of overwhelming force. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. So when FDR called Churchill and he said, we're in with you, F, uh, Churchill said, I knew we would win. And I love it. I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. He wasn't trying to be theological, but that's theological. He knew the war was won. If you know your World War II, there was still a lot of battles to be fought. Christian, I'm telling you this. Chapter seven is telling us the war's been won. You're brand new in Christ. This is what you want to do. You want to be a great husband. You want to be a great wife. You want to be a God-soaked believer. You want to read your Bible. You want to worship. You want to come to church. You want to listen to me preach. Even when I preach for 41 minutes and 44 seconds, you want to hear that. Because there's something in you that goes, that's helping my tarnish. And my deepest desire is to shine with Jesus. Father, we come as kainos people. And if we're not kainos, then may today be the day of a new believer, someone placing their trust in Jesus. Stats show that the word on Christians is not hypocrisy. The word on Christians is we give more, we do more than anybody else on the planet. We live longer, we have more joy, our relationships are better, our marriages are better, our homes are better. That's the word on Christians, no matter what the newspaper says. And so, Lord, would you invite more into that? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, hear the invitation of God for you to trust Christ as your Savior. It's better than a home run to win the game. It wins your soul for all of eternity. For the believer, would you just say, Lord, I know who I am in you. Through your power, may I live it out. So Father, I come and we come not as costume jewelry, but valuable, changed in the heart and the soul, silver. Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.